0: Welcome to the Primitive Initiative Podcast. I'd like to thank the listeners and supporters of this show. I value your feedback after you listen to each show, and I take it to heart to make sure that I can improve the content here. Sometimes, I don't get to produce as much content as I would like to. My goal of one to two podcasts a month isn't always possible, but that is something that I'm working harder and harder towards. I love to bring on interesting guests who have valuable things to say, And I appreciate all of you who stick around. You can follow me on Telegram, on my website, primitiveinitiative.com, and on Instagram. My guest this month is Andrew Kaufman. We talk about healing diets, infections, viral isolation, bypassing mandates, self-doctoring, and therapeutic protocols. Dr. Kaufman has been very generous with his time with many interviewers and answering the same questions over and over again. However, it is a topic that I think people need a lot of clarification on because we've been taught something so different for so long. So I hope you enjoy the perspectives on this show, and I highly encourage you to seek out information on your own about this subject, um, because if you do so, you will find that there is a lot, and I mean a lot, to explore enjoy the show. All right. Hello, everybody. I have Dr. Andrew Kaufman, MD, with me today. Uh, He is a natural healing consultant, inventor, public speaker, forensic psychiatrist, and expert witness. He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center, after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina. And he has a BS from MIT in molecular biology. He has conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised, and mentored medical students, residents, and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He has also qualified as an expert witness in local, state, and federal courts. How are you, Dr. Kaufman?
1: I'm doing well, Ozan.
0: Thank you. Excellent. I'm really glad to have you here. Um, I've wanted to have you here for a long time. I just kind of wanted to build up some more episodes before I had someone like you on. Um, I actually started this podcast because of an individual named Dr. Raymond Peet. I don't know if you ever heard about him, um, but he was someone that I really wanted to interview. He's in his mid-80s, and I just really wanted the opportunity to have him on. I, you know, never want to assume that someone's years are numbered, they could outlive me. But (laughs) he's one of those people that I just didn't want to miss the opportunity to have on my podcast. And then one thing led to another. And I've had people like you, natural healers, and people who share the same philosophy on the podcast to help spread the
1: information. Well, thank you so much. That's uh, very nice of you to Compare me to uh, other people who have made major contributions. Uh, so, uh, But, you know, I think uh, I'm, I'm really just uh, helping translate some of the uh, scientific language, you know, so that people can understand it. Um, and so, you know, that's where my contribution. And there are many figures in natural healing um, I agree that I wish uh, I could still talk to, you know, people like uh, Dr. Sebi uh, or Harvey Biggleson. Um, but I kind of came up a little bit too late <laughs> to uh, to be contemporaries with them, unfortunately. But we certainly can learn a lot from the uh, knowledge and legacy they've uh, left for us.
0: Yeah, definitely, I agree. It's interesting that you said, Doctor Sebi. Uh what do you share? Uh, what do you like about his, what he says? Because from some of the things that I've heard from you, you happen to, at least in my opinion, encourage the consum- consumption of animal products and stuff. He didn't really seem to be fond of that.
1: Well, you know, one thing I've uh, recognized about uh, the way our bodies can heal naturally, like based upon, you know, our natural functions as our bodies were either, you know, designed or evolved, depending on on what you think about that, that there are many ways to uh, bring about healing. And, um, they, different pathways for different people can result in the same kind of healing and benefit, uh, or restoration of health. And so while I may adopt, you know, certain ideas that I think are sensible to me, that doesn't mean that other approaches aren't of equal value. And, you know, Dr. Sebi did have a, a plant-based herbal approach, um, but he was very successful with a lot of people. And so there's something for me to learn, you know, I'm not uh, closed off to just one way of thinking about things. I want to see whatever has value. And, and for me, you know, the proof is, is really, do people actually get better, um, from conditions that otherwise, you know, that we've been told are incurable or something they can only manage for the rest of your life. And I've seen that there are many ways that people can heal from these, uh, things. And I want to learn about all of them.
0: That's great. Uh, I love that approach because I come from a my origin stories, you know, spanned all the diets. You know, like a lot of people in the health realm, it, I started out, you know, as a vegetarian, then went vegan, then went raw vegan, and then raw omnivore, and then <laughs> never went the carnivore out. <laughs> but
1: well, um, but you know, Ozan, it's it's like to me, it's really just so fascinating and and surprising that. Uh, people who eat very, very different diets from each other. I mean like opposite ends of the spectrum. And I'll give you an example. So, Lauren Lockman, who runs a water fasting clinic in Costa Rica, he has been very healthy for over 20 years, eating nothing but fruit and lettuce leaves. Then on the total opposite end of the spectrum, you have Vonderplanets. Now, he died of a, an accident pretty young, but many people who have followed his diet for extended periods of time are also in great health. And that consists of eating raw meat, uh, dairy and eggs. (laughs) So how different could that be from fruit and lettuce leaves yet people can be healthy on those very, very different, uh, nutritional, uh, regimens. So this is, you know, just highlights the incredible complexity, resiliency, and adaptability of, you know, are biological organisms, like including us, and as well as I think many other animals have the ability also to do this. And it's really fascinating, and I think it allows diversity, which can enrich our knowledge and culture.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I I love that you picked those two. I was actually going to talk to you about aginists and um, some of the natural hygienist movement, like Lauren Lockman, and there's even John Rose, Who's uh loves to say solid food vacation because he's a big proponent of juicing. I know. I think Lockman doesn't like juicing. Um, I think he's. I, a I'm doing a important.
1: juicing regimen right now. Actually, <laughs> are you? Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah,
0: awesome. But the those people, and, and I don't want to speak for all of them because you know not all of them share the same view. But they usually question germ theory. Uh, so that that was actually my first exposure to it was when I was uh, working with a naturopathic doctor, and I was in the raw vegan sphere, one of the things that interested me back then um, was the questioning of germ theory. And that kind of planted a seed in me to where I was receptive to information like Thomas Cowan's and yours, and even Agenous Wonder Planets, who I ran into shortly thereafter questioning the germ theory. So I think you're right. And, you know, I, I would also speculate that one of the major things that hurts all of us, no matter what diet you follow or what philosophy you follow, is the aberrations the chemical industrial aberrations on these food products that were maybe not inherently dangerous or bad, or I believe they never were, but that they are now kind of compromised in one way or shape or form. So if you comprise your diet of one thing that used to be just fine, but that one thing is highly compromised, maybe we have to take a different approach. And I think germ theory is kind of the same thing where we're blaming something that didn't seem to be an issue in the past.
1: So absolutely. And you know, it was really um, a guilt by association that really uh, led to germ theory being pushed forward. You know, imagine if you uh, were looking at the cause of house fires, and you went went around from fire to fire and observed, and you noticed that every single fire you found these uh, men dressed in uniforms, uh, holding hoses, right? Now, would you assume that they caused the fires? And certainly, actually it would be in their interest to do so, right? Because it would justify the need for firefighters by setting fires and putting them out, right? But it would be preposterous of any of us to think that the firefighters caused the fires. But that's exactly the reasoning that they applied to germs like bacteria as causing illness, that they looked under the microscope at people's uh, diseased tissue, And they saw bacteria there, and they said, ah, they're the cause. But further experiments never were able to confirm this. In fact, you know, there's a really interesting and dramatic example, and I wish I could remember the name of this professor, but it's described in Torsten Engelbrecht's book, Virus Mania, that there was a a microbiology professor, and he would, in front of his class every year, uh, swallow a pure culture of cholera bacteria. Right now, if uh, your viewers don't remember cholera because it's something that really happens in in developing countries, it's an illness where you get really bad diarrhea, so much so that it actually dehydrates you and can kill you from dehydration. And it supposedly, according to germ theory, is caused by this bacteria, Vibrio cholera. So this professor every year would drink a pure culture of this bacteria right in front of the class and never got sick. Right. And that's uh, the kind of thing that just, you know, he did that to make a point. And that point has been, you know, lost to obfuscation now. But there really is no prima facie scientific evidence that shows this causal relationship. yep.
0: yep. I uh, ran into some of those stories in this book. For those of you listening in on the podcast, the book that I'm holding up is What Really Makes You Ill?, why everything you thought you knew about disease is wrong, by Don Lester and David Parker. I don't know if you know about yes, this book. <laughs> of course. I just call you know with
1: Don and David yesterday. Oh, were you? Oh, were you yesterday? So you have yeah, a new well, uh, interview. We, we developed a friendship, uh, you know, when I read their book, and we did a couple of interviews, and so we catch up with each other, uh, you know, to find out um, how we can uh, make sure that you know we coordinate our efforts in getting important information out there.
0: Yeah. Good. That's great. I, it's, it's amazing. It almost seems like the industry did whatever they could to throw their quote unquote sins onto organic, like natural microbes and viruses or whatever have you. So, um, all the while kind of, when they get caught,
1: they'll be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This, (laughs) this causes this. Right. um, Well, you know, if, if you were developing a business model for, um, you know, petroleum or petrochemical based uh, pharmaceutical medicines. Because if you look back uh, before the turn of the 20th century, medicine in the United States was predominantly naturopathic, chiropractic, and osteopathic. Sorry, homeopathic, not osteopathic. Yeah. There were osteopaths, but they were a smaller group than the homeopaths. And you had due to the influence of uh, Rockefeller and other uh, robber barons in during the oil boom they kind of uh, took over medical education moving toward the allopathic model which was really um, a way to sell pharmaceuticals so if you were to develop a model like this germ theory is perfect because it creates a boogeyman outside the self that you can't control right it you never know who it's going to strike. It can invade you at any time and make you sick. And there's nothing that you can do to stop it or prevent it. Um, you have to go to, you know, a white-coated salesman who has the magic potion, right, which is something uh, that is a synthesized in a laboratory, you know, often based on uh petroleum chemistry, but not necessarily. But nonetheless, it's you have to go to them to get it. Right. Even the laws about prescriptions, you can't even buy it yourself. uh, Right. It's all through their system. So it's like a subscription only model, a private club, and you have to pay in in order to get their treatment. So this makes people dependent on that business model. Yeah. Whereas if you look at natural healing, which would really, you know, focus on something called terrain theory as the most, uh, um, uh, the theory that has the most evidence behind it, um, the remedies would be something that you can do yourself, that you can usually go to the gross grocery store or the health food store and buy a few select items and, um, You can do it on your own. You don't even necessarily even need a doctor or a consultant to give you the information. You can find it out there in books or in published protocols. And you'll have no reliance. And there'll be, of course, then a lot less ability to make money. You know, the pharmaceutical industry does take advantage of plant medicines. But what they do is they take the plant that's been known for thousands of years to have healing properties and they purify out one chemical um, and then they are able to patent that when they synthesize it synthetically and um, make a lot of money. But, but that's not as good as what's in the plant because in the plant you have many different elements that work in a synergistic manner to bring about the real healing. And it's free to everyone on the planet because everyone can grow a plant and then take the leaves or whatever, and you can find instructions to do this, or you can buy it from your local farmer or your neighbor. And there's no, you know, kind of profit margin like there is in the pharmaceutical market because, you know, we, I believe that it's our natural right to, um, you know, use nature to um, as long as we respect it and don't trash it but to work with nature to you know, promote our own health. Because when we're healthy, we actually then uh, support other life um, in, the, in the ecosystem as well. Absolutely.
0: That, it's, it's amazing to me how that holistic view has gotten lost in this reductionist uh, chemistry that we find ourselves in. It's, it, it, this reductionism says that this compound from this plant is the therapeutic compound. But that compound could by itself even be harmful if it doesn't have the synergy involved in the plant. And I think we allocate a lot of resources into pharmaceutical research and billions and billions of dollars. And that could be better suited to go towards making herbs more effective instead of bad-mouthing them because herbs require a chemistry all by their own. The type of soil that they grow in, the altitude that they grow in, it all affects their potency and their efficacy, the extraction methods. But that's been pushed to the wayside, I think and they're so specific in their research of their patentable compounds, but they neglect the importance of that type of scrutiny for natural compounds.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, you make some great points. It's like we've unlearned nature. Because if you look back, you know, before some of the modern technology, people observed, they lived in a natural setting, they observed, and people who cultivated plants, you know, observed different things, and they also related it to other observations. Like, you know, we used to rely on the sky to tell us things about the time, like what season are we in, uh, you know, what what's going on with the natural cycles um, around us by looking at the sky and the constellations and the lunar cycles. And the plants and other elements in nature actually uh, relate their biological cycles to these rhythms in our environment. Right. We all know that things occur in a cyclical manner. Right. We uh, we get colds in the winter, not in the summer, by and large. Right. Um, You know, plants make uh, flowers usually in the spring. Right. And throughout the summer, but not in the winter. So there what do the plants pick up on? Because they don't have watches and uh, they don't have digital clocks, but yet they're aware of these rhythms and they're very sensitive to changes in the environment. And if we pay attention to these things, we, we can realize that, you know, for example, if you plant a seed with uh, in a certain time in the lunar cycle, depending on what's known about that plant, you can have a very different result um, in how fast that plant grows, how much fruit it bears, um, all kinds of things about the quality of that plant, um, and we, you know, have agricultural practices that further interfere with this. Right, that strip minerals out of the soil. That use artificial, uh, you know, fertilization based on nitrogen, phosphate. Um, that you know, basically because we've killed the bacteria in the soil that normally provide the nitrogen, for example. Right, so it's totally out of balance. And, of course, there's an effect uh, on those plants, right, nutritionally. Like, one obvious element is that we have really a major trace mineral deficiency across the population. Yeah,
0: I I totally agree. I I wanted to ask you, because you have a lot of uh, overlapping points with someone who I'm guessing you've been exposed to. Um, He he was the uh, most viewed guest on... Um, Del Big Tree's show. Uh, I don't know if you know Del Big Tree, right? Oh, I think you were on. Was, uh, were you on? I was on Del Big Tree, yes. Yes. Um, Zach Bush, Dr. Zach Bush. Have you been exposed to his content?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I've uh, seen uh, Dr. Bush uh, give some interviews. Okay.
0: I wanted to ask because you were talking about the cyclical nature of the cold or what we perceive to be the cold or the flu. And he attributes that to increased particulate matter uh, as a result of the plants disappearing into uh, fall and winter. And that binding, uh, this genetic material referred to as viruses, and that increases the viral load. So I'm wondering what your views on that are. Do you think that there is a certain tip-off of this genetic information that can cause an aberration, which then would kind of blur the lines between germ theory and terrain theory if there is an abnormality in the amount of information coming in, or do you think it's not possible for such a high viral load, even a high viral load, to cause anything?
1: Well, the first uh, question I think you need to ask is, what are you talking about with a viral load? Um, A viral load is a PCR-based assay that's used in other fake viruses, to uh, uh, try to estimate the quantity of copies of the genetic material uh, present in a sample. So like, for example, they would use this for HIV or hepatitis C as a blood test and try to say that there are so many copies of the virus in your blood. But once again, this is based on uh, looking at fragments of genetic sequences from unknown origin. In other words, they're not from viruses. So you know, Dr. Bush, I'm very confused when I listen to him talk because I'm not sure what he's saying. His when he says the word virus, I don't know exactly what he means. Um, but I do agree with the the um ideas about terrain theory and that what you know this illnesses are, like the seasonal colds and pneumonia are. Uh, essentially, our body's detoxing from the year-long exposure to air pollutants and particles in the air. And I think these mostly come from industrial applications and, and perhaps from geoengineering. But, you know, think about the air filter in your car or in your heating system in your house. Like uh, whenever you've changed that, when you take it out, you see it's gross, <laughs> you know, and right. all it's doing is filtering out the air, the same exact air that we're breathing. So, you know, when you're breathing that air, your uh, upper airway filters it out. In fact, there are many design elements inside of your nose, for example, that it has uh, a 3D architecture of these ridges called turbinates, which increase the surface area, allowing more filtration. Um, They have little uh, cilia and hairs that, you know, uh, catch particles, um, and they also humidify the air. So, all of that gunk that it filters out builds up and depending on how healthy you are, like if you take uh, measures to detoxify yourself periodically or on on an ongoing basis, then you won't need to express that biological program, if you will, to change the air filter because you basically kept the air filter clean, like you washed it, (laughs) you know, um, like a people in my family have have had this experience where they do a, like, um, with my children, we did a detox cleansing in the fall. And this is the first year ever that my kids have not once gotten a cold or a stomach bug or anything. Um, so it's quite interesting to see, you know, that relationship and I've seen it with myself, um, as well. So what we're seeing here with, you know, colds is, is essentially that air filter is being um, changed, and when it comes off, it's not very comfortable. It causes us to suffer briefly, uh, right. but then, but then we you know renew ourselves uh, for the next year. And if there's more toxic exposure, then there's going to be more of these kinds of uh, reactions because our body has to get rid of that in order to function.
0: Okay, so just on that same topic, then do you? Do you think that there are viruses, but they just don't cause disease? Or do you think the whole concept of a virus is not sound?
1: Yeah, well, uh, um, there's really no evidence of the concept of a virus that causes disease. Um, Virus, you know, comes from the Latin word meaning poison. And when they uh, first applied that to uh, a cause of a disease, they actually thought it was a chemical poison of okay. some sort, um, and uh, specifically a protein later on. Um, and then they kept changing their mind about what it is because they kept not finding any evidence uh, for what they were looking for, um, that they could reproduce experimentally. And so what you have is you have other types of particles that are not shown to cause disease but have been purified and characterized. And one of the the most prominent ones called bacteriophages, Mm -hmm. I believe they're misnamed because that means bacteria-eater. But what really has been shown experimentally is that under severe stressful conditions, bacteria actually turn into these phage particles. And Mm -hmm. it's like becoming a spore to survive adverse conditions. Um, But these phage particles can be created under stressful laboratory conditions uh, when you have bacteria in pure cultures. And they can be purified from the bacterial cells and shown on an electron microscope slide, uh, where you have, you know, wall to wall just these phage particles. And you know, you should bring up a picture uh, which you could find uh, many on the internet because they look very unique. They have a, a actually kind of a beautiful geometry. It is. Uh, to it's them. Depressing. And you know, you, you you look at one and you're like. Wow, that's one of those phages. You know, yeah. you, oh, insta- it's very recognizable. Um, the, they've never uh, purified out particles that they say are viruses causing disease uh, by, the, by the same means. And by the way, these ways of purifying uh, the particles out, they have existed for a long time. We're talking about old technology from the 40s and 50s using a centrifuge right? Mm-hmm. The thing that spins around test tubes, that that and a filter, which they had in the 1800s. So it's not like it requires uh, some fancy technology to do this, but they've never been successful. And the reason is because there are no particles that are viruses, and that's why they can't find them. Now, they, they have applied this purification technique to exosomes, which were only discovered about 30 years ago but they're breakdown products of our own cells. They contain genetic material as well, just like they say that viruses do, but um, these particles, they can purify and show that they're unique entities. So, you know, if they can do it there and they can do the phages, they should be able to do it for the viruses, but they have never been able to. And the only conclusion I can come to is that these particles don't exist at all. So if you want to talk about exosomes as being mistaken for viruses, uh, you can do that, but it's important to be very clear and not confuse it with the word virus, Uh, because exosomes don't cause harm to our bodies. They're a reaction to illness, Um, either a reaction to the cells dying or a reaction of a distress signal for your body to do something to address the situation. And um, that is not something to be scared of. That's something to be glad that you have. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, I, th- I'm glad that you broke that down. Um, where I have difficulty is my intuition is telling me that an organism that's stressed out can, or or not just stress, but maybe even in a beneficial way, communicate to an organism close to it that it needs to adapt. So that's where I try to find an answer to what can we transmit to one another And I kind of go back to, I don't know if you've heard of horizontal gene transfer between bacteria. Um, This is where they are essentially doing, possibly through some exosome system or genetic information system, they are relaying things to one another. Um, To say that causes disease, I agree with you, it's a leap. (laughs) But it seems much more of like a symbiotic thing.
1: Right. This is and this is a fascinating area and there definitely needs to be more research uh, here. But, you know, we have even there's a special field in uh, sociology looking at this, which they call social contagion. And basically, we've observed a lot of phenomenon seem to either occur in groups like we were all exposed to the same thing or we seem to pass information without, you know, talking to each other um, about things in our environment. And, you know, this, uh, like a great example, this would be that women who spend a lot of time together, their menstrual cycles synchronize mm-hmm. right now, what is causing that? Because they, you know, it's not, you can tell your body, I want to change my menstrual cycle, <laughs> right. Um, it's happening, right. uh, between these two individual women, but no one would propose that there was a virus going back and forth between them, you know, telling their body when to menstruate, there's some other unknown mechanism. And I can, you know, speculate about what it might be and certainly transferring microorganisms because they're on our skin, they're in our uh, mouth. So if we kiss and touch, we are transferring these things and they do, you know, it's been shown that there is genetic information from gut bacteria in our brain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this does give us information about the environment, and that would be a possible mechanism, but I'm not aware of an experiment that shows it, although that could be easily done. Um, Other things may be through our electromagnetic fields uh, between Mm -hmm. our body or our acoustic fields, because it's known, you know, by scientific evidence that we do put out, I mean, our bodies work on electricity, right? Every cell in our body is like a battery. It has to have a resting membrane potential or a voltage in order to function, Mm -hmm. Uh, right? That's uh, widely accepted, you know, about brain waves that are measured on an EEG. So there are all kinds of electric and magnetic fields that emanate from our body. And when we're in close proximity to others, they overlap with the fields from that other person. And in fact... Uh, being within six feet seems to be a key measurement uh, to have this interaction, which is exactly the distance that social uh, isolation is uh, based upon. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So, so there could be ways through uh, resonance and other uh, wave function mm-hmm. properties, which I'm not a physicist, but I know that these things can interact and produce That's interference right. patterns and et cetera, that could share information. Uh, plus, we know information is all the time coded in electromagnetic waves because that's what our cell phone signal is and our wi fi and we put out similar signals from our own bodies, so what's to say there's not a communication mechanism based upon that that we just haven't measured yet or are not aware of scientifically
0: right yeah i totally I totally get that i I think they all have a prominent influence, no matter how much it's ignored in the mainstream <laughs> um I was actually joking with my friends, saying I'm glad they're recommending triple masking now because people are going to have to get closer to each other to hear each other. <laughs> <laughs> Follow one rule, break the other.
1: Well, so many people, I see that they're wearing cool. three masks. When they get close enough, they'll be saying, "I can't breathe." <laughs>
0: right. By that time, they'll already have collapsed. <laughs> um, it's funny. I, I I try not to wear masks to most places that I go. Um, if I'm told to or if I get caught, then I'll either go out, follow a different avenue to get something or just grab it, depending on how fast I'm doing something. But to me, it's ironic enough to just wear a face shield that does nothing. <laughs> and uh, I like putting placebo on any mask that I do have to wear um, because that's I think it's nothing more than that. But
1: um, well, we were talking it about... is more than that because it, it causes harm. Oh Oh, sure. OK. Right? So uh, placebo should be inert, actually, not something that causes harm. I mean, I agree with you, it, it has no beneficial properties. Yes. Um, but, you know, even in my own experience, uh, I've seen people with illness from it. And of course, even at the local market here, there is a, was a booth with products to address acne from wearing masks. They call it mask <laughs> paint, right? Now, oh acne may not be a serious illness, but it represents the potential uh, because what I've seen in other people are skin infections yeah. um, and, uh, and pneumonia. So that- it, is, it is serious. And then not even to mention the psychological harm of, you know, people's hidden identities. You're de-identified. You can't uh, you can't see visual cues for speech and uh, emotional expression. Right. So there's many things, you know, if you look back at um, our opinion of people wearing masks in public before, like in New York state, there actually was a law against wearing masks in public uh, because that's what you would do if you wanted to commit a crime. You would hide your identity with a mask and then you would mug someone or rob a bank and it was illegal and they had to actually revise the law in New York, I understand, before... Omo um, could issue an executive order for masks. So you know it, it's really uh, a total shift in the thinking and the meaning um, of and people accepting it uh, w- without any scientific uh, basis whatsoever. Um, it, it's it's really important to recognize this because it it separates us from each other. Right.
0: Yeah. I I agree. I I would almost argue they didn't let people wear masks so that the pollution that is the real issue wouldn't come to the surface (laughs) like why are you wearing your masks like have you seen the pollution that's prominent in our city like i I, like like you said like the things that are making us sick uh, are being wrongfully blamed on microbes and then those things are being ignored those things that really like like this book covers what really makes you ill right i mean how much of the stuff is stuff that we've mined out of the earth Or dispersed into the skies. Um, So I wanted to ask you, do you think any microbe can cause disease? Because talking about masks and their negative effects makes me wonder if there's any word that matches with placebo that would indicate that it's a negative placebo, like something that actually harms you. A specific word that I could put on my mask so it would drive the point home. But
1: um, you could uh, do what um, Peggy Hall says and put a suffocation device.
0: Okay, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> there you go. I like that. Yeah, because I, I can't be a lot of words, uh, because you can't see that. Uh, I've found out it needs to be something big and simple. So people can get the message real quick, because people also don't want to look at you. people. I, I see aversion happening, even with people wearing masks. It's almost like they're embarrassed. Um, like they don't look at each other. <laughs> like I used to like nod to people here in Minnesota. We're super friendly. You know, most people are like very friendly. You say hi to everyone. You nod to everyone. That's decreased.
1: Well, here's something I noticed because I, I will never and have never worn a mask. Um, And I even, you know, was fired from a job because of it. But uh, what I noticed is and sometimes people do confront me and I have on a couple of occasions been prevented from, you know, doing business at a certain store. And I'm happy to walk away in those situations. I do try to educate the people. But by and large, the, I think the most important thing to show those people is your smiling face. And when you smile at people, they are so starved for that. Like, the, think about you know, <laughs> cheers work at the grocery store. You know, they just see you know blank face after blank face after blank face, and then here comes a smiling person. You know, they they want. I find that a lot of times I end up taking longer because people want to talk to someone who they can actually see their face, and you know, and of course, people that are really scared won't do this, but they probably would stay. They, you know, they wouldn't necessarily work a job like that. But uh, it's really a surprising thing. So, you know, show show your smile.
0: Yeah, I I agree. That's why whenever I do wear a mask, I try to wear the invisible or the one that, you know, is basically nothing. It's just this shield and there's, you know, opening on top and everywhere. But it's hard for me because I live in a really, really small town and there's a very limited number of stores. Um, so every, every store is specific to what it sells. Like we have a hardware store, that's its own thing. And then there's the food store. So if you decide that you can't go into a place or if they decide for you, because you're not wearing a mask, you lose out on the products in there. Like, for example, I'll give a shout out to Menards who I've been (laughs) conflicted with for a long time and argued with multiple people there. But, um, I don't want to support Amazon. I don't want to shop online. I don't want to feed that paradigm. So the, the the moral decision that I try to make is I'd rather wear a mask, physically go into a store and shop from there because I feel like I'm at least supporting my I don't want to support Menards, but I, I want to support my small community because I don't want these rural places to become obsolete because it seems like we're trying to converge on the singularity of smart cities. And I could stay home, not wear a mask and order my stuff that I usually get from Menards from Amazon. But I feel like almost that's
1: worse. I don't know. <laughs> I I totally agree with you about wanting to support the small business owners because that's who is getting hurt. And I don't want to also support these big um, conglomerate corporation retailers um, because they are really pushing the tyranny forward. But the thing is that um, most of the business owners are not realizing what's going on they're not fighting back, and they're buying into anything. And you know, if we still try to patronize uh, them under the false premise of a pandemic, they're going to still go away. Um, it's not going to help them in the long run. What we should be doing is trying to educate them about what's really going on so they can see this and they can just decide, we're going to just stay open business as usual. And that's the only way we get Back uh, any promise of the future, because then everybody can say we're gonna we're we're gonna boycott, you know, Amazon and Walmart and Target, and we're gonna you know buy everything from here. And then the owners could say, yeah, hey, we'll special order you anything we don't carry, and you can really bring down you know this uh, this reset you know that that is coming uh, in terms of how we do business. But uh, if you just kind of go along with things, uh, I think you're basically just really cooperating with the system because, you know, you might say, well, okay, it's not a big deal. I put it on for 10 or 15 minutes while I go shopping and I can get my things. Um, It's going to be at some point you won't even be able to get in the door of any place without it right? Uh, if we don't resist it now. And those business owners who are unwilling to see or look at it, you know, they're basically making their own choice for the future. So, you know, you could decide, well, I'll go without some of these items, or I'll find a small online retailer that I could support in, you know, in another small community. True. True. Uh, or you can uh, go to the next town and see if, <laughs> Uh, people in the next town who own that right. hardware store, like I know I recently heard of, uh, because a city near me, Ithaca, New York, is very, very convinced about, um, about the virus, right? And probably that's where Cornell University is, and it's super uptight there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but some people there who see the truth, they found a neighboring town has a hardware store where they have a sign up that say masks not required, <laughs> nice. So now we've got like people going to that town, to that store to shop and support them. Yeah. Right. And so this way we can, we can accomplish everything. And, um and you know, that, that business owner then is not going to be vulnerable mm-hmm. to shutdowns because we will still shop there anyway. Right. And so that's how I think we really need to overcome this. And um, sometimes if you sit down and have a conversation, especially if you have, um, like written materials that show the law, you'll see that actually that these places are not following the law um, by having these policies and, and perhaps you could reach them. Sometimes it's really surprising. I have a friend who was kicked out of a local hardware store in, in our neighborhood yeah. and she decided to go back for some reason, but she brought this document, which is like a legal shopper's guide. It lists all the statutes Um, that that they're violating by kicking people out and had a discussion with the owner. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he he wouldn't let her in the store for the discussion. They were outside. But then after a while, he said, you're right. Can can I have these documents? And they changed their policy in the store. Wow, that's amazing. So, like, it can be done uh, by just, you know, neighbors talking to each other, uh you know in a rational calm manner exchanging true information
0: yeah that's a great point the funny thing is this happens to be the largest chain in our uh little city here and it's also the only one that quote unquote requires a mask that's why i tried to resist so hard going in there and the guy they they would literally chase me down and then say you can order online or we can deliver it to you outside we give you those options so you can't complain and then i checked the laws i live in minnesota and it unfortunately mimics what they are saying. So unless I was to, it would be amazing to have that document that she
1: sent. If, if maybe well, I, have... I can uh, send it to you now. It's um, a lot of the statutes are specific for New York, um, but so you might have to do a little research, but um, you know, you might find that uh, there's a discrimination statute that's violated. And also like what authority do they have to kick you out of the store? It's a public accommodation if they're, Doors are open to the public, so they can't make you leave. You have to be able to uh, do business with them if they're open to the public. Otherwise, it's discrimination. You know, unless you're violating the law, Uh, not an executive order, but a law. Like if you were stealing from them, (laughs) then they could could kick you out or charge you as trespassing for sure. But not for refusing to wear a a garment or a, a medical, or refusing to do a medical intervention. They have no authority to dictate medical interventions.
0: Yeah, I, I was so surprised because I, first I said, I have a medical condition the first time I went there without a mask. And the, one of the employees asked me, what is it? <laughs> and then so I said, can I talk to a higher up? And I went to the higher up and I said, you know, you guys are kind of engaged in some discrimination here. First of all, you can't ask people about that. And second off, you know, what, what, what are you basing this off of? And we had a conversation and, and ultimately ended up, they ended it with saying, we're lawyered up. You can do whatever you want. It was very aggressive.
1: Um, I was just amazed. Some retail chains have, you know, taken that tack, like I think uh, Sprouts uh, grocery chain in California, for example. Um, yeah. But most of the big retailers, and you know, we were starting off talking about not giving all the business to big retailers, right? But yeah. but nonetheless, like uh, many of them have realized that it's actually a losing proposition legally. So they allow it, you know, like Walmart uh, um, allows it, the big um, hardware chains, um, you know, they they don't give you a problem at all. Um, in fact, some stores are, you know, even better like the I have to give a shout out to Wegmans, the grocery uh, store in my neck of the woods in New York, because they um, not only respect it. I mean, they may offer you a mask. Uh, but they don't require it. But they say that if other customers bother you, that they will come and help. <laughs> wow. So that I have, you know, I wouldn't uh, ask for that help except in extreme circumstance, but um, but it's it, it just gives you confidence to be in that place knowing that they respect you, right? And they allow you to, to make your own decisions about how you want to protect yourself and shop um and they protect you from other people who want to infringe upon your rights. So that that's you know now they don't have that duty but that is a like a neighborly way uh to run a business. And you know so I I still I don't enjoy going there around people dressed up like surgeons but I I go there with confidence that I'll be able to get my shopping done. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Well,
0: great information and tips for people who have to deal with this every day. So um, I just want to take a little break here and say that people are listening to the Primitive Initiative podcast, and I have Dr. Andrew Kaufman with me. Uh, I, I want to ask you quick, um, is there anything new that you've come across? Anything that you would maybe go back and add to to two of your videos, the first one that you were giving, uh, the the PowerPoint presentation, the one that became very popular, and then the second one, um, the uh, rooster in the river of rats where you get into testing and um, how they're not filtering it and they're more so just looking for genetic material is there anything that you want to add to that and if you could also include your website uh, maybe do that first and then get into that so that people know where to find you
1: yes well uh, my website is uh, md.com and it's uh, k-a-u-f like frank m-a-n just one n And um, if I would encourage people to uh, sign up for my newsletter, because then you'll uh, keep informed about everything that uh, I'm working on, all the projects um, and uh, interviews and presentations, et cetera. Um, You know, those are perhaps the two biggest, uh, you know, presentations I've given. Uh, You know, they were both slideshow academic type presentations and one. Uh, was really where I realized that what they were showing under the microscope is um, likely to be exosomes or other cellular breakdown products, and there's no way to tell uh, or no proof that it's a virus or anything of the sort. Mm -hmm. And the rooster in the river of rats is about Koch's postulates. And Koch's postulates are the uh, simple common sense set of experiments or rules that were proposed by the people in germ theory um, of whereby you prove that a, a germ causes an illness. And um, I reviewed, I've since done another uh, review because there were two papers that claimed to satisfy Koch's postulates for the SARS-CoV-2 uh, fake virus. And so I did a, a presentation with Sayer G. on GreenMed Info talking about one of those papers. Uh, which used transgenic mice um, as a, a host model. But the the river of the rats, I look back at a paper from 2003 in the SARS uh, epidemic that another, uh, the fake virus that this one is based on, that's the SARS-CoV-1 um, pretend virus, and showed how they didn't do what they said in the paper. Um, and in fact, the same thing is true in the more recent paper that they, they did not follow Koch's postulates at all. So Koch's postulates said that you're supposed to be able to um, isolate or purify the germ from people with the illness. So if you have people with strep throat that you can take out a streptococcus bacteria from their throat um, and show that it's there by itself. Um, They've never done that step, but then it says you're supposed to be able to take that germ, put it in a healthy host and cause the same illness, right? And so that's pretty simple. And so they did, they took something which wasn't an an isolated virus. It was a basically the filtered material from a, a toxic cell culture, um, and they put that in experimental animals. But they didn't cause the same illness. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. fact, with the uh, the COVID nineteen study on Koch's postulates the illness that they caused consisted of bristled fur
0: <laughs> interesting
1: so there was no there was no like coughing or wheezing or hypoxia or shortness of breath in the experimental mice in fact the the mice that got the toxic cell culture which they said was the virus versus the mice that didn't get it just got salt water there was actually no statistical difference in their symptoms <laughs> so You know, what we have here is like um, science that if I, if I proposed this experiment in college and handed in a paper, I would get a failing grade because I didn't actually follow the normal procedures of a scientific experiment, like to do a control, to design it so that it can, uh, you know, either prove or disprove your hypothesis. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here. You know, it's uh, it's amazing that it gets published. It, it seems like the person who tells a
0: lie and then tells a lie to cover that lie and then tells another lie to cover all the other lies that they've told, it's building up. But, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that once you start lying that much, it's bound to crumble at some point. So I'm hoping that point comes soon. And I think it's already come, but it's being silenced. <laughs> so... um I really try to direct people to alternative sources of information. And I would also recommend people to pursue um, Dr. Kaufman's videos and interviews on BitChute or Odyssey, uh, kind of these alternative platforms, and turn your friends and family onto these platforms so they don't exist in the echo chamber that is Facebook uh, or becoming Facebook, where it's just the the approved things (laughs) that are visible and the rest are lost.
1: Uh, I've just recently uh, made a shift there because really since last uh, May... I have been pretty much uh, shadow banned and censored on YouTube. So yeah. uh, every sig- important video about the pandemic that I've had has been taken down, with a couple of exceptions since then. And they have not let me get any more subscribers. They demonetized me. Um, they they don't show the true amount of views. Mm-hmm. You know all these things, and um, I've basically been avoiding it for a while but now i'm doing is just putting a, a short description of a video on there and then direct you to my lbry and odyssey platforms and I, I feel that those are among the best options right now until it's clear that everybody goes to one place but i've already heard of things being censored on bit um, as well and uh, so i avoid that i am yeah. I'm in the process of putting links to everything on my website, but I do have some things up there, and uh, including a, a, a short uh, movie that I collaborated with Steve Falconer on about the history of medicine and the corruption of the symbol of the caduceus. So that might be uh, you know of interest uh, for a historical um, background. And then there's one other really good website called questioningcovid.com and that's curated by uh Sayer G. and Kelly Brogan and they it's all medical professionals um uh you know giving lectures about uh the pandemic so it's it's just a, a very rich uh resource of information
0: yeah i actually had questioning covid on my mask when this all started that's what i was that's what i was promoting initially and I, I still do i just i just change it up sometimes try to see that one got a pretty good response um somebody Said nice mask to me, and I was like, Oh, <laughs> I was like, Oh, thanks. Like, I, I don't know what the deal was, I don't know if they had never seen like that half face shield before or if they actually knew about the website, but hey, it's better than getting mad at me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask wearing a mask, you could potentially get, um, you know, acne or pneumonia. Would these be bacterial causes? So, do you think that bacteria? Can be disease causing agents, um, or do you think that any microbe including parasites or excluding you tell me uh, can't cause disease?
1: well um, no i don't i don't I'm not aware of any clear evidence that shows that microorganisms can cause disease. Um, essentially, what they do is they respond to a disease. they're more of the result. Of an illness and they they perform what's called a saprophytic function and this is well characterized in mainstream you know textbooks in ecology and microbiology and we've all observed this in nature where when we see a, a dead animal or a fallen tree or, or a limb that over time microorganisms break down this material back into the constituent elements that can rejoin you know, the soil and uh, new life can emerge in the future. And this is our natural recycling ability. And microorganisms in our bodies do the exact same function. When we have an insult to our health, which could be caused by, you know, physical trauma or exposure to toxic substances from without or from within, from psychological stress, from um, malnourishment, being able to repair a part of our body or um, make a functional protein because of malnutrition. All of these things are insults to the body um, that can cause tissue damage. And when, when that occurs, our, our body sends out microorganisms um, through a pleomorphic cycle. Um, they, they come from different parts of our, of our body, just like we know about the gut flora And they respond to clean up and renew that area of the body. And so they're not the, the cause, they are the response. Now, sometimes we get into a chronic disease state where the microbes can't complete the work. Like they can't clean up the area because the disease is ongoing, for example. Right? Like that we keep putting the poison in our body. I um, mean, you know, like I, I just had the idea of like something like a heroin addict, where it's very dramatic because they're putting dirty needles into the arm day after day, right? And as hard as the body tries to get rid of the crap they're putting in, they keep putting more in. And yeah. so that's kind of so either you have like a toxin that's bio-incompatible, like heavy metals, where the body just has no way to remove it. It's because it's not naturally found in our environment, uh, or there's more coming in. Um, and faster than the body can keep up with it. And so then those microorganisms get into kind of a chronic state. And like, I see this a lot with parasites, uh, that then they kind of, uh, you know, they then manipulate your body so that they can stick around and survive better and sort of become a problem unto themselves. But if you address the root cause, remove the toxicity, they will leave right? They didn't didn't come in and cause the condition. Um, And another way of looking at this is that the same way that our own body, if our terrain gets damaged by a toxin or doesn't have the right raw materials, that results in illness. Well, the microorganisms and parasites are also subject to this. Mm -hmm. So an example would be um, like when you get uh, pseudomembranous colitis or C. diff which is a really bad, you know, infection, quote unquote, but it only occurs after antibiotic treatment. So Mm -hmm. basically the antibiotics kill all the normal bacteria in your colon, except for this one species of Mm -hmm. Clostridium difficile or C. diff. And that survives, but it's kind of pissed off because you just tried to poison it right? And so its terrain is poisoned, so it changes its physiology to deal with that adverse environment, and it starts invading your colon tissue, whereas it actually lived there normally among all the other bacteria when you weren't sick before its terrain got damaged by the antibiotics. So now it becomes sick and becomes somewhat invasive. But you don't. if you give more antibiotics, it's actually much less likely to, to fix the problem. Um, What's shown to fix is addressing the terrain. And the way that's been successful is by doing a fecal transplant. So you restore the bacteria population by giving donor bacteria from a healthy person in their feces, like the same bugs that are in the colon. And then those reestablish a normal terrain and settle down the C. diff back into their quiescent role in balance so none of those things if you took that c diff out of that person and injected it into another person it -hmm. wouldn't it wouldn't make them ill yeah their terrain is healthy um you know it would just go right into balance right in them (laughs) or right or come out in their feces so that's the difference that we're talking about here you know germ theory the germ is the root cause and the only way to um address it is to get rid of the germ okay yeah i
0: Zach Bush makes an analogy saying that you take a field, you destroy it of all of its you know uh mycorrhizae, all the bacteria, and everything, and then the weeds crop up to help remediate the soil, and then the weeds are blamed for causing the dead soil it's you know i I like that parallel of the soil to the gut it's
1: and that is uh that is terrain theory. Mm-hmm. That's uh, exactly what it's describing. And I fully agree, but that's a great macro model for what's happening inside of our body with illness, you know, and it follows the principle as above, so below.
0: Yeah. Should we be taking any antimicrobial approaches at any point if things get out of hand? Let me give an example. When I used to live in Hawaii, I would see surfers with crazy scars all over their legs. And I know Thomas Cowan describes this as observational evidence. So I, I just want you to kind of entertain the thought here because we could be perceiving this completely wrong, as, as I think we are. And the reason given is because they're getting MRSA um, from cutting their legs on the coral reef or getting a cut and getting sand in it and stuff like that. So it's actually a big issue there. You do see a lot of people coming down with this, especially surfers. How would you interpret that and how would you go about treating that? Now, I know you have limited information, but let me give you some context. There are certain parts of the island where they do dump um, waste from the hotels into the water. So could this be a chemical thing as opposed to a micro, uh, micro uh, uh, microorganism thing?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I can definitely explain this, and it's not because there are exotic bacteria in the ocean water that cause the illness. It's, it's actually what you said. It's because of the trauma. So when you have repeat trauma, you're damaging the tissue. And so you get microorganisms respond to try to clean up uh, that damage. But th- it's a little bit more complicated because if you're talking about like what's an infection, uh, you know, a skin infection from a wound. And what happens is that you, you're, you know, I don't like to talk about the immune system in the traditional way that it fights infection, because that's only in the context of germ theory, but the immune cells are the cells that respond when your body's structure is compromised. Like when it's cut open, they come there to, you know, uh, Uh, They're not the only thing because also the clotting system comes there to stop the bleeding. But the, you know, the white blood cells come there to gobble up any foreign material that entered the wound, because that could be harmful to your body and it has to be processed. uh, So it doesn't cause harm. Very common sense, just like the same reason why you clean off a wound. You clean the dirt and debris because, you know, that stuff doesn't belong inside your body. and, And if it if it was put in there, it could make you sick. You know, if you cut open your body and put a bunch of dirt in there, you will get sick for sure, <laughs> right? Because uh, it it'll does; it disrupt the function, but not because germs start growing, but just because it it is um, it disrupts the function. It has things that don't belong there that would be toxic in that environment. Um, you know, the, the body works in a very delicate balance. It needs things to be, you know, just right, the pH just right, the concentration of you know, of minerals to be Mm -hmm. just right. Everything like that needs the right cofactors. It's a miracle that we're alive at all, to be honest, if you really understand the complexity, um, you know, that that goes along with this.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, Yeah, I've always thought throughout all of this, throughout my years, that we have to redefine what we consider an infection or the immune system. All of these words, like you said, are catered to a purely germ theory, based reality or you know <laughs> simulation right so, so yeah
1: let me just finish my description because with this sure. wound, so when you have the immune system responding there um, the immune system is also what manages the toxins in our body so for okay. example if you get a vaccine and it has like aluminum in it your immune cells wall off that aluminum right at the site of the injection in what's called a granuloma because it recognizes it as being toxic, and but also has no way to process it because we don't have a natural aluminum metabolism. And so it just walls it off there. But later on, those immune cells might be needed to respond to like the cuts on your body from surfing. And so it might piggyback the aluminum to a different area. And this has been shown in experiments that immune cells can move toxins around from one part of the body to the other. Now, they respond to bring nutrients to the area to repair the wound. But what if they bring toxic materials instead of nutrients? Maybe the body is deficient in the nutrient-like collagen that it needs to repair the tissue, especially if you're getting cuts all the time and it has to keep repairing them. It'll run out of the raw materials. Once those toxic materials get deposited at the wound site, They irritate that area, cause tissue damage. Then the bacteria come to clean it up. And that's what the skin infection is. Um, And, uh, you know, I've experienced this uh, several times when I lived a toxic uh, lifestyle before I really, um, you know, learned about this stuff. And I had cellulitis uh, several times. But if you use something that will help dissolve those toxins in the wound, um, so they can be cleared and processed through the liver and eliminated, the, the, that so-called skin infection will clear up in no time. And I'm talking about something like uh, putting a couple of drops of turpentine on it or DMSO. Um, and I've, I've done that myself many times, and I know other people who have. And you know, I used to kind of get recurrent skin infections, actually, before I really detoxed. And I tried the topical turpentine before I went through a real cleansing protocol, and it was the, the fastest ever. Like, I had taken antibiotics. I had put topical antibiotics in the past. They always took days before there was any improvement. With turpentine, the next day, it was better, right? Because all it did, was really, it, it penetrated the skin, dissolved whatever toxins were there, causing the damage, and they could just be processed away, and then it could heal normally. Okay. So I, I just want to
0: re, uh, reform this here and um, say it so I understand that I'm understanding it correctly. So if, yeah, you, have nice. a, if you have a wound and you, there's some debris in there that shouldn't be in there or something like that, there can be microbial activity, but that microbial activity is degrading dead tissue, doing its purpose. And also your body may be reacting to the toxin that's also present there. So there could be a double whammy possibly going
1: on. Right. So yeah. if you... If you're overall, your terrain has an excess buildup of toxicities, you know, your body tries to store them in safe places, but they're constantly being moved around if you're accumulating them. So if you have trauma while you have this extra toxic burden, your immune system is going to bring those toxins to the, the site of the wound many times. And, you know, there are many of the illnesses that are thought of to be infections are really just this process Right? Mm-hmm. including some sexually transmitted diseases, because you don't realize that the sexual act creates actually trauma on a microscopic level because of the friction. And this, by the way, is amplified uh, in people who are circumcised. Um, separate topic, but, but important to note. And so your immune system can then deposit these things in your genitals after you, like, let's say you have an, a new partner and you're excited and you have suddenly all the sexual activity, and then you know, then lo and behold, you get some kind of eruption, like, you know, blisters or um, something like that. And it looks like, you know, herpes or, or uh, gonorrhea. Um, And you assume that but what's really happening is the process I described that the little trauma, the immune systems bringing those extra toxins, uh, as a result of your body being toxic, Putting them there, actually trying to get rid of them, because you know since now the surface of the skin is disrupted, right? Your body could purge these things. So like these vesicles or blisters that you see with herpes. Notice they have fluid, right? They're trying to get that fluid out. That fluid is is filled with toxins, and um, you know so it's kind of exploiting the damage to the skin. And this can be magnified if you have a collagen deficiency and your skin is really thin, um, right? Which like Uh, is accentuated during pregnancy many times because everything's stressed out and you're giving all the nutrition to the growing baby. And that's why, like, many illnesses manifest in pregnancy. So this is really, you know, kind of what's happening uh, with a lot of modern chronic illnesses. That's, That's great to know because that, like you said,
0: puts people's control of their health in their own hands once again. Once you know exactly what's going on, or not even exactly, but you understand the mechanism by which these things operate, you can do things yourself to try to fix them. Um, and I that really appeals to me. That's why I want to talk to people like you and educated people so I know because I want to live off-grid at some point, and that's been a dream of mine. So I want to know how to address my, my wives, my kids' uh, issues um, myself on our own because it might take us an hour or two to get to the nearest hospital. So... This, I think it's dangerous to continue the rhetoric of germ theory because, you okay, you sterilized everything. Your house resembles a pure diamond. But if that's not the cause of your issues, you've done nothing. So <laughs> you've
1: made things worse. You're not going to be very healthy living in a sterile environment as well. You know, uh, yeah. ten, you know nine out of ten at least uh, cells in our body are microorganisms and uh, we can't survive without them. You know, research has clearly shown this. Um, it's one of the reasons why chemotherapy is so harmful because it kills all of those um, organisms in our body as well as as our own cells yeah you know Aj- mm-hmm. well, I was just going to mention that i'm I'm actually uh just very close to launching a new uh, webinar series Ugh. where uh, twice a month i'm going to have uh, webinars with Know, question and answers, but my real goal is to educate people on how exactly to do what you're doing is how to manage their own health. And in you know, I think my first uh, webinar is going to be about dealing with emergency situations. And (laughs) um, in truth, there's almost um, you can manage almost any situation by yourself at home successfully if you know, if you have a few things, (laughs) you have to have a few things um, available um but even things like gunshot wounds um you can actually manage uh yourself in terms of surviving so um you know i'm i'm excited about that and uh, anyone who uh gets on my newsletter you'll be the first to know but it's only uh, weeks away at this point in fact i we have a uh, a test uh of the software this afternoon
0: perfect wow i'm really looking forward to that that is so on point with what I was looking for. So that's perfect. Oh, good. And,
1: you know, people will actually have the opportunity to ask me questions directly and have a little bit of back and forth. So I'm really excited about, you know, finding out what people really want to know and, uh, you know, helping them figure out some of these things so they can be prepared to manage their own situations, you know, without having to rely on the hospital and other people.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. I, um, I have a couple more questions for you. Do you have time for those or are you running low on time?
1: Um, Well, if we, I have just a few more minutes, uh, um, but uh, I wish I had more.
0: Okay, no problem. I'll I'll wrap it up here. Do you have time for maybe one more? Sure. Okay. Um, So talking about toxicity uh, possibly being the main cause of what we perceive as infections and stuff like that, um, what are your views on things that would purge the body? You've already talked on a little bit, but like uh, wet cupping or cupping to where it brings things to the surface, the body can clear it, or even wet cupping where there's small incisions made and the, the cup actually pulls out some of the blood in that region that may be dealing with these toxins as opposed to making the body deal with it. It just sucks it out.
1: Well, I definitely agree with the strategy of uh, supporting the body's, um, you know, mechanisms or paths of cleansing. Now I wouldn't be a proponent of making any incisions because then you're causing more harm. So my uh, you know, preferred methods would be to basically use the body's normal detox pathways. And you know so I'm talking about predominantly the liver and the colon, but also the skin um, you know and kidneys and other roots. and it, and it really depends on the particular issue. Um, because, like, if it's a problem in the liver, for example, um, then you know you need to address the liver directly. Uh, right. Because the liver is the biggest organ of detoxification; it filters most toxins out of the blood. The kidney really mostly regulates the concentration of minerals and salts, um, although it, it can do some detoxification as well. So, the liver is really a key thing. Um, But uh, like, I'll give you an example. So something I know is very effective for pneumonia. um, And by the way, before antibiotics, the primary treatment for pneumonia was enemas and they're very effective. Um, So what I know is effective is a combination of enemas and that really allows your liver and colon to remove toxins um, and inhaled uh, steam with turpentine. So if you were to just uh, take uh, one liter of distilled water and boil uh, two cloves of garlic for 10 minutes and then add five drops of pure gum spirits of turpentine, and then, uh, this is not medical advice by the way, I've just uh, sure. passed on this information, but other people have reported it to be very effective and uh, essentially improve their pneumonia within 24 hours. And um, this could be repeated up to three times a day, and you just basically put a towel over your head and inhale the steam for about five or 10 minutes. And, uh, you know, that essentially will detoxify your airways in your lungs and um, encourage any parasites that may be there to uh, leave the area. Um, And then the enemas uh, gives them an exit strategy. So, you know, your body knows that there's flow, there and anything that wants to get out can go there and uh, as soon as that enema comes they'll be gone so that's a very effective um, uh, you know mechanism to deal with that and and other things you know would just be specific for what is the toxin that you're trying to remove and what part of the body and you know things like heavy metals are the most challenging uh, because our body doesn't have systems to get rid of these naturally because they're not supposed to be in our bodies. <laughs> and I'm talking about things like mercury, arsenic, yeah. aluminum and others.
0: So possibly antagonizing those metals would be the preferable route by consuming. Cause I know, for example, I think cadmium is displaced by zinc and things like that. So
1: absolutely providing the essential minerals that you need nutritionally is a key thing because your body can, use toxic minerals functionally because it doesn't have anything else. So you want to displace all those and let those get out of your body. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, Shilajit is one of the best ways to do that because when it offloads those minerals, it, it, the fulvic acid, which is really a chelator is empty and it can then bind. So if it like, let's say exchanges, you know, um, uh, the right chromium for the toxic chromium, for example, because there are two isotopes of chromium. And then the, now it's got an empty binding site on the fulvic acid, and now the toxic chromium that comes off that enzyme can go in there and then it can be removed from the body. So that's a really good uh, start. And then I often, I, I would recommend you know chelating agents that would be in the gut, in the blood, and on the skin. So the skin, you could do infrared saunas or something like a bentonite clay bath would remove metals through the skin, both of those approaches. You could take orally a chelating agent like zeolite, diatomaceous earth, chlorella. There are many. And then for the blood, you would take something um, like in a micronized uh, form which they have like for zeolite and, and those chelators, or I really like a spagyric uh, tinctures of cilantro. Um, I think horsetail is another plant that you could make such a tincture of that uh, they have a high silica content, which chelates heavy metals. Um, So there, you know, those are the kind of heavy metal approaches uh, that I would use. And I, and I generally uh, would recommend that they be used in combination with each other. For a prolonged uh, time period, because it's mm. it's just really difficult to get those metals out that it takes
0: some patience. I see. Yeah. Just kind of keeping with it and making sure that you're supporting, like you said, the organs of elimination so you're not just moving things around. <laughs> um, and, that, and that
1: includes, by the way, having adequate hydration. Because if your mm. blood's too thick, from and many people are walking around chronically dehydrated, mm. um, if your blood's too thick, it can't dissolve It has less dissolving power, so it can't get rid of the toxins and bring them to your liver for removal. So that's really a key thing, and I generally recommend one quart of water per uh, 60 pounds body weight.
0: Is there a specific type of water that you prefer?
1: Well, I I think that um, at a minimum, the water has to be clean. Um, And there are only two technologies that I feel are adequate for filtration, which is reverse osmosis and distillation. But the, the water quality could be improved after that by uh, structuring it or oxygenating it. It's unknown right now how beneficial those things are or could be, although I, I do believe there's a benefit. But certainly the, there are so many contaminants in tap water and bottled water and even spring water that could be harmful. It's, I, I feel that it's most important to remove those things in order to have uh, you know, healthy water. Perfect. Well,
0: I could talk to you all day, and, um, <laughs> and but the good thing is that I think a lot of the remaining questions are going to be covered in that uh, seminar that you're about to have, or that video that you said you're going to do. So I'm really looking forward to that. If people want more, I highly suggest they tune into that and all your other content. And um, I really appreciate you being
1: here and giving
0: your expertise on everything.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was uh, really a pleasure
0: good. Thank you. Uh, Well, you have a good rest of your day, and uh, we'll talk to you later.
1: All right. Take care.
0: I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the Primitive Initiative podcast. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, follow, and share. If you'd like to find out ways to support us and for show notes, resources, and timestamps, please head on over to primitiveinitiative.com. Thank you.